are looking into, as best we can, what a well-ordered new covenant church community of believers look like. And we've learned a few things that she is a church that is, or, that is ordered according to and around scriptures. Nothing extra biblical, no individual person, but the Word of God is our final authority. There is no authority outside of scriptures or above scriptures for us. This is why the early church came up with a very first creed, which is, do you remember? Jesus is Lord. That was their first confession. And that was, a, that was more than just a religious confession. It was also a political confession. Why? Because Jesus, not Caesar, was their Lord. And this is why there was so much persecution. And this is why there will be more persecution in our future. Jesus is your Lord. He's your ultimate authority. And, I, and it's very clear. Like if you look throughout the history of, of humanity, you will find wherever communism existed... Christianity was outlawed. Why? Because if you are a communist, you have to be an atheist because there is no God other than the state. The state has to be your ultimate authority in order to be a communist. That's why Christianity and communism are so violently opposed to one another. And so we've learned that she is a church that is ordered according to scriptures she gathers around scriptures. She elevates scriptures. Scriptures is her highest authority. And she has a scripturally designed governing body made up of elders. We also found that she's weaved together with multiple covenant relationships, covenant relationships between husbands and wives. That's what you will find inside of the body of Christ, these covenantal mindsets, covenant between husband and wives, covenant between Parents and their children and the children and their parents. Covenantal relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ that are in the seats. We are a covenantal body. We are a house of covenants. We understand covenant. That's why we, every time we receive communion, what are we doing? We are celebrating the covenant, putting in remembrance the covenant that was made with us by God himself. But today, we're going to look at how a congregation like ours, should see ourselves? How do we view ourselves? Are we a social group getting together? What are we? Who are we and what is our function right here in Chicago, the surrounding areas and beyond? What is our function? Now, we're going to look at three different, we're going to have three different examples. We'll take our cue from three different examples, uh, including John the Baptist, the church at Philippi, and a group in the early church called the Waldesians. So first, let's look at John the Baptist serving as a light in the darkness. Think about it. Between Malachi and John the Baptist, or you might say Matthew, in that time period right there, which is 400 years, there was complete silence from heaven. We heard nothing from God. But as an example, inside of that period of time, 
There was a tremendous amount of evil that happened, a tremendous amount of darkness that took place. And, and I will give you one example. 168 before Christ was King Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus became very enraged against the Jewish people at that time, as everybody seemed to do. <laughs> but historically speaking, and this is not inspired scriptures, but there is history in the Maccabees. In second book of Maccabees in chapter 5, I want to quote this to you. This is history. And it says, King Antiochus thought that Judea was, a, was in revolt. Raging like a wild animal, he set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. So he's going after the Jews. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their homes. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost. 40,000 meeting a violent death and the same number being sold into slavery. Now, this took place 168 years before Jesus. And that happened within the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. It was a violent time. It was dark. Those were dark years. It was merciless on the earth. For 400 years... Leading up to John the Baptist, God sent no man to speak on his behalf. John was the first. No word from heaven. No divine direction. No promise from God. No prophecy. It is almost like they were experiencing a season of Ichabod where the glory had departed, God had left them. And then here comes John. John the Baptist, preparing the way for the Lord. He was a voice in the wilderness. Jesus says of him in John 5, 35, John was a lamp that burned and gave light. That's who he was. He says, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light before, of course, he was decapitated. So the conclusion that I wanted to bring to light here, or to your mind, is that it doesn't matter how insignificant a small spark may seem, like John the Baptist at the time, a tiny flame like him can set the entire world on fire. So we're talking about how do we view ourselves. And I want to suggest to you that as a New Testament covenant community of believers, we are a seed within a very fallen generation, within a very, very blinded geography a geography so lost they cannot discern between right and wrong good and evil and when they see good they want to condemn it as evil and when they see evil they want to make laws to elevate it and these are the times we're living in and we have to know who are we in these times we are the light ever so small that shines but it absolutely overcomes darkness we are the seed that grows and turns into harvests and forests. Number two, the church at Philippi serving as a light in a crooked and perverse generation. I love this book, the book of Philippians. I really want to encourage you to read it. 
But the truth is, every generation lives in that place, in a generation that is crooked and that's perverse. Everybody lives there. But sometimes, God allows degenerate governments to give a perverse and, 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 and generation the freedom they need in order to reveal just how crooked and vile they really are. It takes a government to come and say, okay, right now what we're going to do is we're going to make laws that will open up those gates, those floodgates of vile evil, and it will now be grandstanded. It will now come to surface, come to the surface, and it is now what will be celebrated. And that is what we are seeing in our day and in our age. And it's a sign to us as to who we truly are. It is the sign of the times, and it is telling us why God placed us here. In Philippians 2, 12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work His good pleasure. It is God that works in you both to will the right thing. I love how Augustine said, for to will is of nature. To will a right is of grace. The grace of God came to restore your will. That's why you could choose righteousness. That's why you could choose faith. That's why you could choose repentance and you could choose Christ. Because the grace of God touched your will. Don't let anybody ever, don't let anybody come to you and tell you that no, well, God will never, God will never override your will. I didn't say he'll override it, but he will restore it. You couldn't will a right until the grace of God touched you. That's why if you will to serve God, guess what? He gets the glory for you wanting to serve him. Because his grace restored your crooked and distorted will. However, that's not what I'm trying to point out today. <laughs> Verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. And here it is, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights. Among whom you shine as lights in this world. So what this portion of Scripture is telling us, just like the stars and the moon are brightest when the sky is darkest, so you are as lights. You are the luminaries. You are those lights shining in the universe, he says, when everything is so dark. That's who you are in the world which you live, just like they were in Philippians. That is actually why you are here. That's why God, in His providence, decided for you to be born in this age and not in another age. That you may shine as a light now here. Every generation has always been crooked and perverse because men have always been fallen. And governments at time allows that to boil over. So it doesn't matter whether it boils over or not. It's always been there. It's actually a blessing that it's been revealed. 
But it tells us who we are. In this dark, perverted and twisted world, we are like the lights that shine in the darkness. Isn't that good news to you? It gives a lot of direction, comfort, but also affirmation as to, hey, so yeah, I'm the only one that thinks this way. I know. <laughs> I'm the only one that believes this way in my, on the workplace. I know. I'm the only one that kind of holds fast to these principles and these truths in my family. I know. Or we just seem like a small little rugged little bunch of people. Well, I know. But guess what? If you look at a seed, you have to realize that it holds within it the potential to turn into a massive forest. And that's exactly what has happened throughout time with this light that God has called us to be. So that is why you are here. God understands the depths of corruption in this world. Nothing escapes God. He's not shocked. Nothing escapes Him. And just as we currently find ourselves in a perverse generation, so also did the Philippians. I want to tell you a little bit about this church because it was pretty, it's pretty phenomenal. This church in Philippi was situated, or is situated, was situated in our current modern day age, modern Greece, excuse me. Philippi was named after Philip of Macedon around the 4th century before Christ. Now the interesting thing about Philip... Macedon was that he was the father of Alexander the Great. This is the fourth century before Christ. That's within those 400 years of silence. <laughs> Philippi became known for its extremely pagan culture. The perverseness of its people had no boundaries. And guess what? Out of all of Europe, God decides, and preordains the Apostle Paul to plant the very first church in Philippi in all of Europe. Here's the first church. So let's take a closer look at this church and let's learn from her. Firstly, we see that this little church plant was like a drop in the ocean of crookedness, perverseness. Philippians 2.15. Secondly, we see that this church was not only planted in the heart of the most pagan perverse city, but the book of Acts tells us that they were extremely poor. They simply had no means. Which is kind of interesting. How was God going to use them? <laughs> Not only are they the smallest subculture within a perverse nation or perverse city, they also are of the poorest in that city. Thirdly, this poverty-stricken church also had many opponents, people terrorizing them causing great suffering, personal suffering in the lives of the congregants. It says that in Philippians 1, 28 through 29. I want to read to you just verse 29. Well, let's go 28 and 29. It says, And not frightened in any, anything by your opponents. Not frightened by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, it's been granted to you to believe. For the sake of Christ, it's been granted to you to believe in Him, but also to suffer 
for his sake. Fourthly, we see that they were being infiltrated by false teachers. Philippians 3.2, he warns them. He says, look out for the dogs, referring to false teachers. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In other words, look out for those demanding that you have to be circumcised in order to come into this church family. And then firstly, we see that the church was suffering from uh, internal disagreements and disunity among the congregants. Philippians 4 verse 2, it says, Now I appeal to Eudea and Cynthia. Now, all right, somebody else is going to do a better job at pronouncing those names. <laughs> Just wanted to make Dave feel better. <laughs> Philippi. <laughs> Please, he says, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreements. Stop it. If you read it in different translations, you see that he was begging them publicly to stop the arguments inside of the church. So these were difficult times for this little church. The very first church planted in Europe, swimming in an ocean of perverseness, extremely poor, persecuted, terrorized, infiltrated by false teachers, and struggling with infighting and disunity. Tough times, huh? At the time of writing the book of Philippians, <laughs> to make it worse, the founding pastor, the Apostle Paul, had been in prison for four years already. Considering all of these negatives, he now writes them a letter. And in this letter, the Philippians, it's called the Epistle of Joy. Amazingly so. It really seems like there wasn't actually one thing to be joyful over. <laughs> they were called to be joyful. I don't know how many of you remember that song. Uh, we used to sing it back in the day when I was in Pentecostal church. Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. How many of you know it? Lord always rejoice, rejoice. And again I say rejoice. Those words are the words that he penned while in prison to this church that had so many issues. Feeling completely abandoned. Here they are. Swallowed up, swimming in this ocean of perverseness, and their founding pastor from prison tells them, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Why? Because he knew that they were called to be the luminaries, the lights, in this crooked and perverse generation. This was the world the early church lived in. Even so, this was the exact place that God wanted for them to be. Right in the middle of all of this. Now, I know we've experienced so many things over the last five years. Don't you feel like things are speeding up? It's almost like even the headlines in the news. It's like, wow, so many things happen so quickly now. It's difficult to consume all that's taking place all the time. So you may have a very pessimistic, pessimistic or negative, gloomy and defeatist view of where we are at in our, in our culture today. But according to God's foreknowledge and His sovereign will, this is exactly where God planned for you to be. 
Otherwise, in his providence, he would have had you live in a different age, at a different time, facing different issues. But right now is the absolute best time for you to be here, in this age, in this time. Right now is the best time to build families, the best time to have children and raise them. Because people are starting to say, well, this is, this is not it. This is, the world's just too evil. The world's always been evil. And we need people like you to raise children like them in order to be the light in a world like this. Right? It really is a more blessed time. Tell you what, I was thinking about this. I'm glad everything that's happening in schools are happening on our front burner, on our screens. We're able to read through what they are now putting in curriculums. I'm so happy to see all of that just came out. Not just, but it, you know. Because imagine if it was there and we never saw it. That would have been horrible. I'm just thinking about child rearing. So if I had to have a child right now, and I didn't know. and I'm, I have children, what I meant is if I had a a new child. <laughs> Brand new child. My uncle used to say I was born at a very early age. But if I had a brand new baby, <laughs> you know, and I didn't know what was going on and I was oblivious to the fact that the world has always been crooked and always been perverse and blinded to everything that the child is going through, you know, that would have been devastating. But thank God. Thank God you see what's going on. I'm sure there's more going on than what we're seeing, not just in schools, but everywhere else, everywhere else, more going on than you're seeing. But the point is just every time you see something that makes you want to throw something at the TV or your computer screen or go like, oh, my God, what's going on with the world? The sky's for every time you see that. Remember, God called you to live right now as a light. Right now as a light. Now we have to find out what it means to live as a light, but right now as a light. That's what God is calling us to. In His providence, He saw it fit to plant you in the middle of all of this. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. It's good times. Good times. You know, the Bible says, don't say the good old days. Did you know that? So don't say that. These are important times. And generations will look back to how your light shone during this time. John 17, 15, 18 says, Jesus speaking, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He's speaking to the Father. He says, I'm not asking that you take these, your children, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not the world, just as I am not the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in your word. The word of God is what sanctifies us. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Wow. Guess what? Evidently, you have been sent into the world. And here you are. Apparently, you didn't just happen. Apparently, you've been sent. Oh, I got a mission? Yeah, I have a mission. What is that mission? To shine like the luminaries. To be the bright light shining. To be that flame like John. 
that eventually takes over the world. So to be sure, God has placed you exactly where He wants you to be, and He did it for a purpose, and that is to be a light. Matthew 5, verse 14 and 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It couldn't be more clearer. If you have in your library a book called How to Discover Your Purpose, throw it away. Here it is. It's in your Bible. Okay? Just throw it away. Don't use it as a door stopper. You might be tempted to one day pick it up and read it. It's worthless. You have, a, you have a Bible. You are the light of the world, says Jesus himself. We are exactly where we are supposed to be, and we are here for the exact reason Jesus called us to be here, which is to be a light. Number three, I would love for us to look at a group in the, in the early church called the Waldesians. Has anybody ever heard of that? All right, everybody that went through first-year Bible school heard about the, the Waldesians. And by the way, if you're catching up to first-year, that was last week's lesson, okay? So I can't get it out of my heart, can't get it out of my mind. But the Waldesians are a wonderful group of people. They lived during the, middle, the late Middle Ages, and now historians are looking at this group of people, and they view them as a precursor to... 1517's Reformation that was sparked by Martin Luther. The origins, they believe, of the Waldesians traces back to, most people say, Peter Waldo, also called Valdez. He was a very wealthy man. He's a merchant in, in France. But he got radically saved, and in the year 1174, Waldo renounced his wealth because he read he read, not in context, but he read practically that um, Jesus told the rich young ruler, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow. And he says, that's what I'm going to do. And he sold everything he had. He took half of his wealth and he translated the Bible into the native tongue. So here they had Bibles in their hands that they could read and understand against, contrary to the Roman church's wishes. And he willingly lived in poverty, and he was a tremendous uh, missionary. He was a tremendous evangelist. This is where street evangelism came from. People started following him. Because two years later, 1,167 after, uh, after Christ, Waldo became a traveling preacher. And as he was traveling, many started joining him, and they became known as the poor men of lions. The poor men of lions. They soon ran into many problems with the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church, for two reasons mainly initially, because they had no formal training as clergy, and they had no rights to, number one, read the Bible or preach. Nobody was allowed to preach. Nobody was allowed to teach. Only the trained clergy. They also got into trouble because they were handing out Bibles to the common, in the common vernacular, and people were prohibited to read scriptures, as they really are not encouraged to do so even today. But church officials told Waldo 
and his paupers to stop preaching without consent from the church. But of course, they, the Waldeseans loved the scriptures. They were well trained in scriptures to a degree. Of course, they, not, they weren't where the church is at today. They were living in very dark times. And, uh, but they loved the scriptures. They insisted that the Bible was their sole authority, that there was no authority above scriptures to them. Um, they publicly started criticizing the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. And they went obeying Christ, preaching the gospel from village to village as they walked around in their, in their rags. The Waldeseans rejected many of the superstitious traditions of Catholicism, including praying for the dead. They did then. They still do today. The Waldeseans rejected it then. The Waldeseans still reject it today. They spoke against indulgences. They spoke against the doctrine of purgatory very publicly, very vocally against it. And where the Roman Catholic Church had seven sacraments, they still do, <clears throat> the Waldoseans at the time embraced only two sacraments, which was, number one, baptism, number two, communion. And there's an interesting story right here. I don't want to spend too much time in it, but there was a pope by the name Pope um, Innocent III. And this pope was, he, he was... Uh, quite the vicious man, quite the violent man. But what he did was he was the one who's able to declare himself as ruler over all rulers on earth, as the one lower than God but higher than men. And uh, he declared himself as such. And what he did was he actually established many, many horrible doctrines inside of the Roman Catholic Church, including transubstantiation. The doctrine of transubstantiation is simply when he decided that when a priest offers communion, that there's a the substance that they offer transforms from bread into Christ's actual body. And the wine, that the moment the priest offers it, transforms, the substance of it transforms into the actual blood of Christ. And when they offer communion, um, the person is receiving communion that they're giving the person communion to. That person is receiving Christ and grace of God is being infused to that person. And there was a reason why this became an actual doctrine. Because King John of England and the Pope got into an argument and Innocent III would ever take no for an answer. And so all, what he did was he declared that the church will immediately stop marrying anybody in England. They will immediately no longer bury anybody in England. And I believe they wouldn't, they wouldn't offer communion. Not so sure on the third point. But they wouldn't marry anybody. They wouldn't bury anybody until the king does whatever Innocent III told him to do. But then, the third, thing, the third thing I know he did was, then he went and he announced to France, he encouraged France 
to please invade England. And of course, King John falls to his knees and he says, I need Christ. Don't withhold Christ from me by withholding communion from me. And so, at that point is when Innocent declared himself king of all kings on earth. And that's where we get the idea of him sitting in the seat of Christ in the earth. Anyhow, the point I'm trying to make here is the Waldesians at this time, when there was so much going on, threats going on to the king and everybody else, they very publicly, very vocally started denouncing all of what was going on, including the idea of transubstantiation that became a doctrine. So you understand why transubstantiation became a doctrine. It's so that politically they could have the power to overthrow whoever they needed to overthrow by withholding Christ from that king. So they refused to bow before altars. They refused to bow before statues. They refused to venerate saints. These are the Waldesians. And in short, the Waldesians could be seen as launching a pre-Reformation movement before Luther even came on the scene. Because remember, we are now in the 1100s, 1200s after Christ. Well, the Catholic Church did not take kindly to the Waldesians' call to reform. In 1181, the Archbishop of Lyons excommunicated the Waldesians. Three years later, the, po the Pope declared them to be heretics. And in 1215, the Fourth Lateral Council declared the an anathema on Waldesians. And in two, 1230s, persecution against the Waldesians increased and lasted for, three, for uh, 300 years. From, actually, it was from the 12th century to the 7th century, the Waldesians were being hunted down. They lived in caves. You can go and search it out, uh, pictures of it on the internet. They still have some of the remains of where they built their sanctuaries and how they hid in the mountains and in the valleys. They were actually called people of the valley. The Waldesians went underground. Many groups retreated into remote areas in the Alps in order to survive. And then, of course, here we go all the way into the 1515-17, when the Reformation sparked in response to such severe persecution. Many of the Waldesians fled to Geneva, Switzerland, where they found refuge with John Calvin. And here they, the Waldesians, joined the Reformation and strengthened the Reformation. Now, many of them, you'll see, you'll see there was, there's even a mountain up northern part of Italy where um, they would take Waldesians because they were hiding in the mountains. They would take the Waldesians and actually throw them off the mountains. And they were executed in many different ways. But these men believed that scriptures were the ultimate authority. And they, in a very dark world, they were the light that shone. And guess what? Today, there are still in their denomination 45,000 members, <laughs> the Waldesians. Now, I don't know exactly what they teach these days because, as you know, we can just use the Baptist as an example. They certainly do not, many of them do not believe what they used to believe yesterday or the day before. <laughs> They're changing at the speed of light. John 18:36 says, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. 
that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom that belongs to Christ transcends this world. There is nothing in this world that can change it, that can limit or alter God's plans for His kingdom. There isn't a king. There isn't a religious leader. Nobody can alter, limit, or change God's plans for His kingdom. His kingdom cannot be hemmed in. It cannot be diminished or hampered by this world. It doesn't matter who says what. God's word cannot be canceled, will not be canceled. God's servants cannot be canceled. God's lights, you and I, cannot be canceled. Nobody can stop you from being a light. In other words, nobody can stop you from fulfilling your purpose. Nobody can stop you from doing exactly right now what God has called you to do and live your life completely to the full, no matter what laws gets passed. We, like John the Baptist, like the church at Philippi, <clears throat> like the church throughout the ages, like the Waldoseans, cannot be silenced. We cannot be stopped. We cannot be erased. We are uncancelable. I'm actually looking forward to the day when somebody says, well, we're going to cancel you. Oh, I can't wait for that day. It'll be a glorious day. Oh, would we have a celebration. Psalm 37, 13 says, but the Lord laughs at the wicked. He actually laughs at them. For he knows their day is coming. Proverbs 3.34, he mocks proud mockers. So what are we to do? That's the question. So we see every single world has been twisted and perverse, crooked as the day is long. Sometimes it boils over and it's revealed and we see it. But throughout history, all we need to do is follow our spiritual family tree, our lineage, because they are our brothers. Those Waldoseans were our brothers and sisters and are. We are closely, closer related to them than what we are to our own family that are unbelieving. Did you know that? We are the children of God. He is our Father. And we have covenant relationships one with another and with those who have gone before us. Who carried the light. Who actually did what God also called us to do. They did in their generation. We have been called to do in our generation. Paul is your brother. Think about this. Waldo is your brother. I know, strange name. My brother Waldo. In 1,210. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> there he is, 1,120. There's Waldo. Call him Valdez. Sounds better. We have to see our spiritual family tree as our brother and sister. You know, you know one of the big problems we have in our generation? It's like generation. Our, our critical thinking has been dumbed down to such a low level 
that we bite every single time they try and get us to identify with something or someone. Every time they try and cause chaos, which is what they, is of course the plan, the way they do it is by trying to get you to identify with somebody other as opposed to somebody other. <laughs> All they need to do is they need to just turn people up against each other. But what I'm saying to you today is that you have a family, and that family has lived throughout the ages, and they have carried the light throughout the ages, and that is the light that God has called you to be. So what are we to do? How do we live as light? I want us to look at the very same portion. He says in verse, let's start reading from verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. He's, a, he's telling us how to be a light. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That tells me the person who's grumbling is not being a light. The person who finds himself in disputes all the time is not being a light. But the word grumbling there also includes not just the fact that wherever you're part of, nothing is ever right. In other words, you're a tall order, you know, you're not easily pleased. Uh, th that's the person who grumbles. But the, the person who grumbles is also the one who is never satisfied with God's providence in their lives. I should have it easier. Why should you have it easier? You ever wondered? What qualifies me to demand that I should have had things easier? I should have things easier right now in my life. My point is just, the grumbling is sometimes, all the time, is when we are not content over the station, the fact that God has called us to the station in life. Stop grumbling. You live in a wicked, perverse, and twisted, a crooked, vile world. Now, stop grumbling. Shine instead. Can you grumble and shine at the same time? No. Then he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing disputing when everything becomes an argument that you may be blameless and innocent that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights and then it says holding fast to the word of life holding fast to the word of life Many translations translate that holding forth the word of life or holding out the word of life. David, could I use your Bible quick? When I'm holding forth the word of light, I'm holding forth God's truth. When I'm holding out the word of life, I'm holding out God's truth for all to see. God's truth. Here is where I, here is my search for truth. My search for truth is not 
to discover why that company should have gone down a long time ago because they're all crooked. Everybody's crooked. Every generation is crooked. My point is, when I'm fighting for truth, I'm fighting for this truth. When I'm holding out truth, I'm holding out this truth. That is how I shine. Correct? Let's just look at that again. It says, do all things without grumbling. Do all things without, dis- do all things without disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding out or holding forth the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and you should rejoice with me. We should be glad in order to shine. We should rejoice in order to shine. We should hold forth the very truth of God in order to shine. And we cannot grumble and shine at the same time. We cannot be filled with disputing matters and shine at the same time. Now, when I say dispute, I'm not saying, let's not say, hey, listen, why does it seem like this verse contradicts that verse? That's not disputing. I'm saying disputing is when we get into the thick with each other over small issues, right? Instead of the more weightier matters of the law. I'm saying that in regards to what we talked about last time. This is a covenant community, covenant community which covers each other's sins in love. That means don't dispute. Stop arguing. But if it's a weightier matter of the law, well, then you go to your brother or your sister in private. And if they hear you out, you've won a brother. If they haven't, you take somebody else with you. If they still won't, then you go to the church and the church will talk to them. Amen? And so we don't live in disputes. We don't grumble. We are glad. We rejoice. And we hold forth the truth of the Word of God. And so we shine in this perverse and crooked world. Amen. Do you get something out of the Word? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, today, I thank you that you've called us as a well-ordered, new covenant community of believers. We're a covenant, a house of covenants, We celebrate it every time we receive communion. We thank you, God, for all that you have done in us. The word that you are are giving us, Father God, calling us to be lights, calling us to be the luminaries, calling us to be like John was a lamp and a light, like the early church fathers and those early church groups were lights in the dark world. So you have called us to be a light in a dark world, to hold forth your truth, to hold out your truth, to be glad and to rejoice because you deemed it fit in your providence to put us down at this place, at this time, in this generation. We thank you, Father God, that you are willing to use us 
In Jesus' name, amen.